Good morning, folks. So, I'm speaking on um, Nehemiah. Hopefully, um, this thing, this will work. Okay, so, um, I was thinking, like, how would I start this? And um, actually, something just dropped in my mind, and I thought, okay, let's go with it. So, we'll go with... Is this working? (laughs) What, press that button? Okay. It looks like that's not going to work. It was working before, but... um, if we go to the next slide. We're getting there. Oops. Okay, so it's now working. Okay, so I thought I'd start with this. Uh, hands up those people who uh, either grew up or have told their kids this story. Okay, so it's a common story. I remember my father saying this story many, many times. Uh, Wolf's the big bag villain. Oh, be, be careful of the villain. Um, the idea being is that two built not with the smartest ideas of how to build a house. One did build a house, and when the wolf came to that particular place, the wolf wasn't able to blow the house down. So that got me thinking about sort of the whole idea, because I'm sure many of you have grown up with this idea of what Nehemiah is like about the whole idea of building walls. So it was just something to think about that particular story, the idea of how you go about preparing and thinking about building something that's going to last, that's going to stand, and also think about how it's going to deal with potential opposition. So just to give you a little bit of an inside background, Graham spoke last week. Uh, He looked at the book of Ezra, and that particular slide just gives you a little bit of a contrast. Um, So Graham talked about... Zerubbabel and Ezra, the idea of coming from a captive place back to Israel uh, with the permission of the king, and the idea being that in the book of Ezra, the temple was built, it was established, uh, a place of worship, a place where God's presence resides. If you look at some of the uh, prophets, Uh, like uh, Ezekiel, the idea is they see the presence of God leave Jerusalem when they're in captivity. So the establishment, as as Graham said last week, was that this was the establishment of the spiritual foundation in this new home, uh, having to rebuild everything from scratch. Now, in Ezra 4, it says about the whole idea that they started to rebuild the walls. They'd established the temple, the temple, the place of spiritual worship, the presence of God residing was established. 
They started to rebuild the walls, but because of opposition, they stopped. So that sets us up very well for what is the book of Nehemiah. Now, on the board, or the slide, or whatever, it just gives you a little bit of an idea of the context of where um, Nehemiah starts. Fifteen years after the book of Ezra ends, and some 150 years after the city was destroyed. And we start off with this guy, Nehemiah. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to in terms of who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was not someone who was born uh, when they occupied Israel. He was born in captivity. He had never, ever seen what Jerusalem was really, really like. And yet, he had grown up into a place of position in the king's palace. He'd grown up in a place that he was the cupbearer The cupbearer had a very special place in the king's court. A place of favor, a place of trust. And yet, when he hears the news of what's happened back in Jerusalem, he's overcome with emotion. He's overcome with the sense that this is not right. Having never ever been to the place before, having grown up all his life in a foreign country, there's something that stirs up in Nehemiah about the whole idea of what it means to have something that's a vision from God. The interesting thing I like about Nehemiah here is that he's focused on God. He has what some people might call a burden placed on him. And in that moment, he has like a vision, a download from God, a burden to see something happening. And in that process, he thinks and goes to God. A couple of things that I like about that first initial point is that he comes to God and he says, we have rebelled, we He identifies himself with the rest of Israel. Not just say, oh, my ancestors have done something wrong. It's not really me, but my ancestors. He identifies with himself. And as a result, he goes back to God and he says, God, and this prayer. And to me, this prayer is really an idea of actually, it's not a case of um, thinking about, well, God's forgetful. But it's a case of God, you said, if we would repent and come back to you, you said that you would have a sense of favor on us. What Nehemiah is doing is he's recalling what has happened in the past. He's recalling the things that God has spoke through the prophets in the past. He's recalling what God has done in the past and bringing that idea into the present and in a place of identifying and going before God he says on behalf of this nation God we confess we repent yes we have astrayed but you have said that if we repent we can come back into that place now Having got that initial burden, that initial idea, 
the impression that you would get if you read Nehemiah quickly, you would sense that it happens very, very quickly. But there's a period of four months. Four months after that initial revelation, that initial going to God before he even goes to the king. I'm going to say a little bit later about that, but that four months is quite crucial. Four months of praying before anything's happened. Now he goes to the king and uh, what happens is he basically pleads to the king and the king with the position that Nehemiah has in the courts has an element of favor and the king says yes. Not only will I allow you to be able to go back and rebuild the walls, but I will allow you to take resources and some army to be able to help you. It's an interesting thing, actually, that when you have a sense of the purpose of God for your life, how much favor God releases for you to fulfill the thing that he's given you. I remember growing up many a times, I was thinking that the way that my misjudgment of who God was, was that God would say, do this, and then he'd step back and say, well, come on, come on, out of your own strength, do that, and I'd have to do it, but no. When God gives you a vision, an outpouring, something that is uh, a destiny, he will equip you with everything that you need. We're talking about this whole idea of building and it's not just sense a sort of a building in this city, but we're also linking it to the idea of the idea of what do we want in the building in Worcester for a community, for the building of the church, the kingdom, but also thinking about what do we want as a people for a building, both, I suppose, in a sense spiritually, but also in a physical sense. And we need to think about actually. What can we dream for what God can give us? What can we dream? What can we think that God wants to give us? That's important to think because God's not limited by resources. He's an endless supplier. And when the favor of God comes on you, like Nehemiah with the king, resources is not a problem. It's a case of stepping into that place. So Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, and interesting enough, he doesn't tell anyone. He just arrives, and I'm sure someone would have recognized him. Oh, he's the cupbearer from the king. Something must important happen. But no, he just arrives, doesn't tell anyone, goes out and inspects what's the situation. What's happening in this situation? He goes out and inspects the walls, goes out and inspects the gates. For the first time in his whole life, he gets to visually see something that he's been praying for for four months. Four months, he laid the foundations for praying and agreeing with God what God wanted him to do. And now he gets to see it with his own eyes. And I'm sure as he's walking around, strategies from heaven are being downloaded. Okay, we need to do this. Oh, we need to do that. Okay, that looks like we need to sort that out. That partnership that Nehemiah had with God. And after all of that, after going around and and 
basically looking at what's happened. He inspires the people. Now, the interesting thing is the inspiration it, it, in, the, in the scriptures, it doesn't talk, he doesn't give a 50 minute sermon to stir up. It's only a couple of verses. The thing that jumped to me is that when you have a vision from God, you have the favor of God for resources. You have strategies come down. And there's power in the words that you speak because the heaven is coming down and releasing through you. And I'm sure that when Nehemiah spoke, the words he spoke had the power of God through them to stir up the people. Not because he had an elegant speech, but because the words were were touched with the Heavenly Father because there was a plan that was involved. It's interesting, actually, a lot of people, if you go onto the web, that Nehemiah is often linked as a book on leadership. And so people will say that, okay, if you want to look at the whole idea of leadership, look at the way Nehemiah does things. But actually, in some ways, we're all part of being leaders in some point. Um, We had Henry talk about two weeks ago about our role in this city. We all are a leader in our workplace with the kingdom of God. So it's not just a group, select group of people that play a role of leadership. We too have a way of influencing others. That's what a leader really is. Someone who influences someone else. That's all of us. Okay, so why would walls be so important? If we were to build a city today, we don't build walls around a city. So why were walls so important back then? And I I was looking up, and it was quite interesting to see the context of what walls meant. Walls were not only a place of safety, but a place of identity. It was a place where this is where our city is. Yes, it's a place of safety where we can withdraw into if we get attacked. But it's a place of identity. One, one thing that I read was saying that actually in, the, old, in the, the ancient times, a city without walls tended to have a reputation of there's nothing worth in that city. If it was worth something, there would be walls. But a city without walls was not worth anything at all. Shame. Lack. Easy to crumble over. So walls were very important for many reasons, not just for a place of hiding and safety amongst the enemy. So the idea of building walls was just a sense of, actually, it just wasn't about bricks and mortar. It was establishing an identity and removing the shame of what had happened previously where they had rebelled and drifted away from God and being taken captive. This was a restoration of taking place, establishing identity, establishing a place where God can pour out his favor amongst his people. This is a picture. Um, It's not the real picture, because there weren't photographs back in those times, but it's a model of basically what Nehemiah would build. 
And as we can see there, it's not something that you would just sort of do in a couple of days. It takes a, quite a lot of planning. I'm sure all those people who are into engineering, architecture, would realize, okay, there's a couple of rivers there. We can't just build something willy-nilly because it could sink and we need to have structures established. So it requires strategy. It requires thinking. Then we come to Nehemiah 3. Oops, sorry. Nehemiah 3. Take a look at that for just a moment or so. In Nehemiah 3, it talks about a list of every family and what part of the building of the walls did they play. And you think, well, why? Why do we need to have a list? Who, who really needs to know, well, this person did that part and this person did that part? But to me, I think that's important because it symbolizes every single person has a part to play. This is a picture of a community coming together and fulfilling a purpose that God has ordained through one person spreading out. And it's interesting to note that the, the work starts with the priests. You would think the priests could get an exception. Well, you don't have to work because you're a priest. But no, they step up. They say, we're going to start, and we're going to start with this place here. To me, that's a picture of representing togetherness. Not only do we have in this community a place of togetherness, but actually in this city, we have a place of coming together as a community. For those who don't know, uh, May the 20th is quite actually a very important time. All of the churches are not having any services, but coming together in Worcester Cathedral, I think that's very, very significant. Because what we are doing as a community is we are establishing a place in Worcester of what God wants to do, regardless of denominations, regardless of any sort of theological preferences. It's a coming together and saying, we as a believers of God, of Jesus Christ, believe without a shadow of a doubt that we want Worcester to be an influence and an outpouring of what God wants to do on this place. It's a significant time. The other thing also that comes very important with that is that it quickly establishes a sense of responsibility. It means that there are no weak links. Because any family can organize their little sphere of influence to affect the greater good. It's one of the things that many people struggle with is, well, where do I fit in with the big story? Have a look at that picture. I'm sure someone says, well, how is my little one-meter-high wall going to be any effect? Well, the thing about a wall a city is that you can't have weak links. So even if you've just got a stretch about a meter wide going up, that is very significant. Looking at that one-meter section, you think, well, big deal. But in a grand picture, looking at something like that, it becomes very important. We all have a very important part to play. Not just a small little thing, 
sometimes we can get focused on the small little things that we have. Oh, what, what, what influence have I got? What importance do I have? You have a very important influence. You have a very important part to play. It's just tapping into the grand picture of what God wants to say. Here's a, a picture basically giving you an idea of the size. If you think about the guy hammering at the start, thinking about the size, it's not something I'm sh- that's going to take a short amount of time. It requires someone to be able to think about planning about all of this. So they start building this. And very quickly, it's established that opposition comes. Um, Graham talked a little bit about the fact that when um, Israelites are taken captive, there was some remnant left, of, uh, left in the land. And these people started to interbreed and intermarry with the people that were not from God. And so they, the ideas of God were diluted. And so when the people come back, there was a, a, a group of people there where they're thinking, hang on a minute, what are you guys doing? So, opposition arises to the walls. And this is what I want to talk about, actually, for the next 15 minutes or so. Opposition arising when you start to step in to what God's called you to do. I was reading somewhere, actually... But this is a classic example of Nehemiah gets a vision, Nehemiah gets a burden, he goes and he has favor put on him, he gets resources, he comes back, he inspects, he gets strategy, he gets plans. He starts to build and do what God's calling to, and in the process of doing, opposition arises. Actually, that's an interesting thing, that the time we step out into what God's called us to do, that's when the enemy starts to give us lies, doubt, fear. And actually, this story is a story of how do you overcome the lies, the doubt, when you're fulfilling something that God's called you to fill and work in. So I've got a video, and let's hope this video works. (laughs) Okay.
Okay, so that just gives you a little bit of an idea, um, like the situation. So I want to take a, a look at five uh, particular attacks by the enemy and what was the response. So let's start off with the first one. Okay, this is Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 3. So it says, Sembalat ridiculed the Jews. What are those feeble Jews doing? Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite said, What they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down the wall of stone. So there's an element of mockery. Call that a wall, that's nothing. And yet, Nehemiah's response is very clear. Verse 4, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Verse 6, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half the height, for the people worked with all their heart. Some translations actually say they worked with one mind. The ability that in the process of following the calling of God, they were able to come together and be able to fulfill what God was saying. It's interesting, actually, how many times do we find that when God gives us something, gives us uh, either an outline or something that we're called to do, how many times that the enemy will give doubt? You only have to look at what happened with Jesus after having that special encounter with the Father when he rose uh, out of the water after being baptized, where God the Father spoke his identity that he goes into the wilderness, and the enemy comes with doubt, with things to try and trick Jesus into doing something that wasn't on God's heart. In the same way, if we really know who we are in God, when the enemy comes, we can simply stand in that place and say, actually, no, that's not who I am. I'm not going to give in to fear. That song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Knowing that full realization of who we are, sons and daughters of the Most High, means that we can stand in that place and we can realize that the plans of the enemy are not going to come to fruition. Second one. This is uh, verse 8. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. The whole idea of, well, creating sense of confusion. Well, if mockery, ridicule is not going to happen, well, let's raise up and see if we can instill fear. Let's see if we can put in a place where we can show them our might. It's interesting, actually, what happens in this thing. There is quite a very clear indication through the whole book of Nehemiah of Nehemiah going to God and seeking God out in the sense of prayer. What happens is very clear from the fact that Nehemiah spends time with God and in that process God speaks to him plans and strategies. One of the things that we need to do when we face opposition, when we face hardships in our own life, we need to be able to have that spiritual connection with God, to have that encouragement. Now, that doesn't always have to be where we get encouragement in our own time with God. That's probably the most ideal source. 
But another source of encouragement is where we encourage each other. I've had many a times where actually I'm going through something of a difficult nature and I'll get a text or I'll get an email just praying for you. You're doing a fantastic job. You're an amazing person. And it just lifts you up because of the encouragement. And I'm sure that particular person was just going about their normal day and God just dropped into their mind. Why don't you send that text message to Paul and encourage him? How many times have we had that opportunity to be able to encourage and bless someone else? It's all about that Nehemiah 3, the building of the walls. There's no weak links. We're all one family of being together. And so when one person suffers, we can encourage them. We can come around them, support them. One of the things that uh, Nehemiah establishes after this process is the whole idea of what's commonly known as the trowel and the sword. The idea that in the one hand you have the trowel and one hand you have the sword. The idea that there are some who are guard, but most of the time you build and you keep guard. So the idea being is that the sword, what does the sword represent? Well, the word of God. But I also think it's having a sense of worship as well. In the fact that spiritual warfare is not just standing in a place, but it's actually looking to God and saying, actually, I'm going to worship God in the midst of these circumstances. I'm going to look to God and I'm going to stand on what he has said and I'm going to worship him, I'm going to declare him. That's the thing that the enemy absolutely hates. Trial, carrying out God's plan. So on the one hand, we worship God, we read God's word, we focus on what God says both the written word and the spoken word. But on the other hand, we are bold enough to step out and start doing the things that God has spoken to us. It's not just one thing to hear from God. Faith requires us to step out. If you read some of the things about James, James says, actually, faith is not just hearing, but stepping out as well and doing what God has spoken us to do. That requires boldness. That requires us to believe and trust in what God has said for us. Interesting, the next thing, um, or the next, it takes a break from the attacks, and something happens very interesting in Nehemiah 5. Nehemiah 5 deals with the whole idea of internal squabbling. So most of the attacks up this point have come from outside. But then in Nehemiah 5, there's this whole squabbling take place about loans. You think, what? You're squabbling about basically how much interest rates you give to your person who's poor. And and it's like, what's that got to do with following the purposes of God? But I think actually sometimes what happens is as we start to step into the purposes of God, as we start to think about and walk in what God's told us to do, some things rise up in us that don't necessarily go well with the thing what God wants us to do. It's interesting, actually, there's a small verse there in Nehemiah 4 which talks about one of the groups complains about the amount of rubbish. Some translations talk about the fact that they go to Nehemiah and say there's all this rubble around. We can't build the wall because there's all this rubble around. 
And actually, they have to stop building and actually deal with the rubbish and the rubble that's there. Rubble that was there from the past and also when things have invaded and left rubbish in that place. Sometimes as we step out into the purposes of God, things come up in our own life that God wants us to deal with. That's happened to me many a times. Happened to me this week, actually. As I stepped out, something crawled up into me. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, that's not right. Responded in the wrong way. I think we need to go back to God and deal with that rubbish that's there. But we need to be able to be willing to come to the point of realizing that there's sometimes this rubbish in our own lives that we need to get rid of. Because you might not realize it, but the whole thing is that we're a team. We're in a, a, a body working together. And when God shines on something in our lives, it's not for ridicule or anything like that. It says, I'd like to deal with that. I'd like to take that hurt and pain from your life. The baggage you're carrying, I'd like to remove that so that you can fulfill fulfill the purposes that I've got. In Nehemiah, it had to be that rubble needed to be removed away. It says they built it halfway, but they couldn't build it to the full height because of all the rubbish and the rubble that was in the way. So actually, the purposes of God require sometimes where we have to look at our own life God shows us things, and we need to be able to get rid of those things so we can continue on. Let's have a look at the third attack. This is Nehemiah 6, verse 2. Um, I suppose the, the baddies. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. I always found that quite funny about Ono. Don't go there. Oh no, shouldn't do that. Maybe it's, it's probably one of those English translations that was sort of fits really well. But the thing that I've, I've, I, I really found interesting is the whole idea that actually God gives Nehemiah discernment. And discernment runs through the next three attacks. Now what's discernment? Discernment is the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them, and not according to outward appearances. How many times have we had to realize that actually there are things going on and we just we get that sense, something not right about this? Or the opposite, everything looks absolutely dire, and we think, actually, the discernment I'm sensing, there's actually God's going to be in this. The appearances that we have might not lend itself. Let's, I'm going to read 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's very important that we come to realize it's the heart issue that's the important thing. With the whole thing of the turning, we might look at something and we might go, oh, the outward appearance, oh, okay. But it's the heart issue that God wants to be able to deal with. 
We might not necessarily know when we go out on the streets the whole thing of the results, but actually God does. He knows the heart of the situation. The whole thing about discernment is being able to know when something comes, actually, uh uh-uh, that's not right. And I've had many a times myself or my wife or my friends, something comes up. It looks amazing. It looks very, very appealing. But you just go, "Mm, something not right about that. Just have a sense. And you step into the place of following what God gives you through the process of discernment. And you realize, actually, that was a good thing. Oh, no. Uh, Number four, slander and lies. This this is basically Nehemiah 6.5. So what they try to do is they try and send a letter saying, okay, well, we're going to send a letter to the Persian king. You are claiming that you're going to set yourself up as king. Well, this is not going to be good. The king's not going to like about that at all. But the interesting thing was, Nehemiah, again, with the whole thing of what God's purposing, verse 8, I sent him this reply, nothing like what you were saying is happening. You were just making it up out of your head. What lies? They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But once again, Nehemiah goes to God. God strengthened my hands. And the last one, This is an interesting one. Now what's happening is the enemy has got into the ranks. And the story is that there's a guy who's a prophet, comes to Nehemiah and says, actually, Nehemiah, oh, this is getting a bit too much. I think you should go into the temple and just just go into the temple and you'll be safe. You think, okay, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the thing is, in those days... The priests were the only ones allowed by God to go into the temple. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. So actually, this prophet is not really a prophet, but actually trying to trick Nehemiah into the wrong sense. It's interesting, actually, what happens is that Nehemiah comes to the place of praying, and it's revealed to Nehemiah that this is actually, this guy is not a prophet. He's on the payroll of the enemies. And again, once again, the idea of discernment trying to come into the place. So, after all those attacks, 52 days later after they started building, the walls completed. Is this still on? Yes? Let's go back to what we started off. He prayed for four months laying the foundations. Four months going to God. The building of the walls took 52 days. You saw the picture there. 52 days to build that. That's extraordinary. But it was laid in the foundations of four months of prayer by one person who got a vision from God, got a burden from God, sought God before doing anything else and even going to the king. Sometimes when we come to God, God will give us something that starts burning. And as we share that, other people catch on that. Prayer helps us to be able to cast our burdens on him. Prayer helps us to get insight of how to proceed. Prayer will give you strength. Isaiah 40, 31. 
When we wait on the Lord in prayer, he will give us strength and we will rise up. And finally, prayer helps us to be able to get encouragement to be able to bless others. I think Rodney shared a while ago, the essence of prophecy is divine encouragement. What better way to be able to encourage someone with the words that come from the heart of the Father? So, just a couple of verses that you probably might be aware of about what God is like for us. He is our rock, our fortress. He's our place of safety. He's the strong tower, but he's also the place where we get our identity from. He's also the person who's wanting us to fulfill our destiny. So, what can we take away? Focusing on God, what he's called us to do. Knowing who you are in the midst of opposition. Very important. You are a child of God. Having that unshakable confidence in what God can do. Realizing that actually, no matter what happens, the favor of God is on you to fulfill the things God's called you to do. If he's called you to do something, he's going to give you the grace. He's going to give you the finances. He's going to give you everything to fulfill that. Because the connection, you are a son and daughter. He's not going to leave you alone. He wants that relationship. And finally, the whole purpose of coming together as a unit, the family of God, the understanding that we're together in this, not just on our own, but we're a family. And families do go through hard times, but together, a family can be so much stronger than a whole bunch of individuals. With a knighted purpose, fulfilling, everyone fulfilling their duty, everyone fulfilling their calling. I remember talking about Richard, one of the things that, when he came on board with the church, was one of the things that, I suppose he was tasked to identify what has God spoken to you and what can we do to help you fulfill God's calling in your life. To me, that's what everyone should do, to be able to help everyone. God has given every single one of you a plan and a purpose and a destiny. And you might not know it, but when looking at that picture, all of those plans and destinies unite as one big picture for us as a church and one big picture for us as a Worcester city and we give words of encouragement we go to God and we just ask for the infilling to be able to do that so I've got a very um, God's given me a very distinct thing of ministry time so what I would like you to do is stand up and get into groups of three or four please Three or four, please. Okay. Now, we're going to pray for each other. Um, it does have to be three or four, because if you've got a group of five or six, it's going to take five, th- twice as long. So if you could split into threes and fours, not fives or sixes, please. What we're going to do is we're going to take turns praying for each other. 
And there's a specific thing I want you to pray for each other. And we're going to do it in such a way that we all pray for one person at a time. So, this is what I would like you to do. You're going to pray for an infilling of God to be able to reveal to that person their purpose, their destiny, who they are, and the strength of God and the resources of God for them to fulfill that destiny. All it requires you to do is to be able to lay hands on that person, focus on them, pray, Father, release an outpouring, release strength into this person, reveal the destiny that you have on them. Now, we're going to do this in a unique way. What we're going to do this is we're going to have, we're going to do it for three minutes, four minutes. No, let's go three minutes for each person. And we're going to start with the oldest person first. So I want you to figure out who's the oldest person first, pray for them first, and in three minutes' time, we'll swap. Go. Go.